The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're focusing on the autumn auctions in New York, one of the key moments in the year for the art market. Later in the podcast we'll discuss the results so far with Melanie Gerlis, a market columnist for the Art Newspaper and the Financial Times. But before we talk to Melanie, we're focusing on David Hockney. Long before this week, his 1972 painting Portrait of an Artist, Pool with Two Figures, on sale in Christie's post-war and contemporary sale on the 15th of November, was identified as the week's top lot. It's unique in that it's one of a series of three-metre-wide double portraits he made in the late 60s, and also one of his much-loved swimming pool paintings. On my right, at $80 million, ladies and gentlemen, selling here at Christie's, the Hockney is... sold. Sure enough, the painting fetched a record price for a living artist in the Christie's auction. First, to Hockney himself. He was in London last week to collect award at the Royal Academy for his lifetime contribution to the art of printmaking from Norway's Queen Sonja Art Foundation. I went to the RA to speak to Hockney about portrait of the artist, about printmaking and a great deal more. Can we talk about um, your painting portrait of an artist pool with two figures which is about to come to auction at Christie's I'm interested in the this extraordinary genesis of the painting the fact that it there was this uh, serendipitous moment where you saw, you saw two photographs two different photographs on the floor of your was it of your studio yeah yeah, yeah. and that suggested a, comp- a composition for this great painting uh, well yes and I did I started a painting of it, but after a while I thought the angle, I'd done it wrong because he couldn't see, he couldn't actually see the swimmer. So this is the standing figure, couldn't look. uh, And I wanted it in a show in New York, so I went down to where this had been photographed, um, which was in uh, the south of France. I went back there and did some drawings and then came back to London. And I did the painting in about three weeks, but I was working 12 hours a day on it. And we should say, I mean, it's a three-metre-wide painting, so that's, that's an extraordinary effort to yeah. complete that, a painting in three weeks on that scale. Yeah, yeah, it was, because Mr and Mrs Clark and Percy had taken six months. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, did you... I mean, it is obviously the same exact scale as Mr and Mrs Clark and Percy and the Henry Geldzahl, of, although all those double portraits. Yeah. And yet it's seen, in, in a way... Visually, it feels very different, and you were also very interested in this idea of the the figures existing in two very different spaces, one in the pool and one standing looking at the figure in the pool. Yeah, yeah. I thought the painting was quite successful, really, and then we had it in the show in New York and I sold it. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the way that swimming pools presented two kinds of... Uh, things to you, both a kind of idyll of a, of a kind of lifestyle, but also from a sort of painterly point of view, a real challenge in terms of depicting water. Yeah. Can you tell me something about that? 
Well, um, I'd always been interested in uh, water, glass. I remember George Herbert's poem, A man may look on glass, on it may stay his eye, or if he pleaseth through it pass, and there the heaven espy which is a terrific thing about looking on glass and then through it. And uh, I realized in California, the swimming pools were a bit like this. You could look on the surface of the water or you could look through it. And uh, so, I mean, in California, when I'd arrived there, I flew there. I waited uh, till they'd built an airport before I went to L.A. I wouldn't have been in a covered wagon going there. <laughs> uh, but um, I began to notice the pools, and then and it was this problem, I thought. And so I uh, devised ways to do it uh, that didn't look like photographs of it. Photographs of it are just a frozen moment. And I knew dancing lines weren't frozen and they weren't. Uh, and so that's what I did. And uh, I only did about 12 pool paintings. I mean, I didn't do that many. Lots of people would have churned them out, but I didn't. Uh, I was always interested in other things as well, really. Did, did, a lot of people have seen in your pool paintings a kind of uh, knowing kind of nod to abstraction and almost a criticism of abstraction. Is that Was that in your mind, or is that an art historian reading that well, into it? Well, um... Nowadays, I mean, I can see why European art needed abstraction. Chinese art and Japanese art didn't, because they always knew what abstraction was. I mean, a scholar's rock is an abstraction. The Japanese print is an abstraction. Well, the reason abstraction was needed in Europe, I think, was because of the photograph. Uh, people saw the photograph and thought, well, if that's going to be the photograph, the photograph needed shadows, didn't it? Because optics need shadows. And... Uh, I have pointed out, for instance, in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which is a museum of the 19th century. And when it begins, there's lots and lots of chiaroscura. But when it ends, most of it is gone. That's Van Gogh, uh, Matisse, Bonnard. But there's no explanation given for this. Well, I know it, I know it. Um, so, abstraction was necessary, uh, and great claims were made for it, actually, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, 
And I thought they'd gone much too much, actually. <laughs> um, so, but, I mean, I was influenced by those ideas. I mean, uh, uh, abstraction is, I mean, what would you have otherwise? A naturalism that's not that good and things. Uh, uh, but I'm still going on with this now. I mean, I'm still fascinated by it. Uh, but I can see now ways ahead. I mean, I can, actually, I am. We're here at the Royal Academy because you're being presented with an award for a lifetime achievement in printmaking. Can you tell me about what printmaking means to you, how important it's been to your practice? Well... The first things I did in prints were lithographs, which I did at the Bradford School of Art. I just printed five or six of them. Then at the Royal College of Art, when they used to give you free hardboard, but I'd run out of paint and I hadn't much money, so I went in the etching department because they gave the plates away and so I could carry on working um, and I did and um, I just did some etchings and I didn't print many then and uh, I then got a prize for one of them uh, in 1961 and with that money I went to New York uh, actually and that in turn became a subject for a whole group of prints yes it did uh, because uh, when I was on the Bowery and you saw all these homeless people which they weren't in London then and so I thought New York was more like Hogarth's London. And uh, so I thought of doing a version of it, a rake's progress, and uh, I made one. Um, and then the Royal College of Art, on seeing me doing them, then suggested I could extend it to uh, 24 etchings and I wasn't sure about that anyway in the end I did uh, 16 which is twice what uh, Hogarth did then I uh, I sold those I sold the whole editions for £5,000. Must have been extraordinarily liberating for you to do that. Yeah, and then I went to California with that money and stayed for six months and did a lot more painting then. Um, so printmaking certainly helped me for a long time. And then uh, I did... I did some more prints in California. Then I did some with Ken Tyler. At, um, He's a master printer, a great master printer. Yeah. 
and then I did I did those paper pools with him but they weren't technically prints each one was an individual piece um, but we did those and then uh, then I made more prints in Gemini and then I didn't do any for a while then I started drawing on an iPad and just sent them out to friends that's all I did with them and then eventually we printed some of those I mean once I'd got an iPad I thought the iPad was a, a new medium really you draw on glass um, with a lighted background and things and uh, when I, I was one of the first people to get an iPad I mean the moment it was out in California we got one sent to Bridlington and uh, I experimented with it for six months and I got rather good on it then um, I tried out every brush and things on this brushes app and um, then I realized I could do the arrival of spring in 2011 on the iPad and I drew about 90 actually giving an account of the arrival of spring I mean it began with the snow on Walgate and ends with uh, all the blossom and things and that took uh, four months actually I made about 90 but in the end we just reduced it to 50 which was in that show at the Royal Academy and then later on we printed those yeah so do you see in a way the the surface of an iPad as something akin to a plate or a lithographic stone uh, not quite because you're drawing on it with color I mean um, the color was uh, quite subtle I would draw on it and then print them and it was the print I was interested in so sometimes uh, you might have four greens on the iPad and you can't quite get them printing so I would exaggerate them and I mean and go back and print them I mean that's uh, what I felt I had to do um, I'd uh, drawn with a computer a long time before but uh, we'd had to go down to Wiltshire to do this because the computer was the size of a room or something I mean now it's on an iPad I mean it's uh, but uh, when I drew on it, it was always a little late. You draw a line and then the line would appear. 
Well, that's not much good for a draftsman, <laughs> not much good at all. So, I'd, I mean, I'd just do some drawings on it, then I'd abandon it. And it never got good again until uh, about, I mean, it was after 2000, um, uh, when I drew on a tablet then and you to draw looking here and draw there and things like that and I did uh, some portraits on it and things but uh, when I got an iPad I thought this is really subtle because you can I mean the line appears exactly at the same time uh, and that's um, mostly what I've done in print uh, but I am planning uh, now to go to Normandy in March and I'm going to do the arrival of spring in Normandy next year. Do you anticipate it being significantly different to the arrival of spring where you've Yes. Well, first of all, there's a lot more blossom. There's apple blossom, cherry blossom, pear blossom, uh, blackthorn blossom, hawthorn blossom. Uh, also, I've just been in Normandy, and I saw the bio tapestry, and I think. I might do one like the bio-tapestry, begin with trees in the winter and things. It's a great work, that. Marvellous work. And I did notice it contained no shadows. So my question for the art historian was when did the shadows start in European art? Yeah. Did you get an answer? No, I haven't, but I have an answer. Uh, I mean, it's about 1420. Right. Yeah. We've heard today that there's going to be a Van Gogh and Hockney exhibition. I can't let you go without you telling us a bit about that. Well, um, they'd always wanted to do one. I mean, they have other artists there. Uh, and... They'd asked me two years ago, and I couldn't do it then because of uh, other things. Uh, now they're doing it. It's opening in the end of February. Uh, I mean, me and Van Gogh. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, there's not much competition, really. Uh, but... Um, Van Gogh is a great, great painter. I mean, he, I'm pointing out, he could see very, very clearly, very clearly. And he knew he could see clearly. And uh, I think I can see quite clearly, not quite like Van Gogh. Um, but uh, Van Gogh didn't have any friends much and I think he arranged that because 
that's why in three years he did all our work. I mean, he couldn't have done it if he'd have had too many friends, I don't think. Um, he's a fascinating artist. I just read that uh, biography of him. It's very, very good, but it just... I'll tell you what, he misses out. I mean, it makes out he was a rather miserable person and uh, and things. But when he was painting, he wasn't miserable. I mean, he loved painting, and he could, as I say, he could see very clearly. He had ideas about colour and space and... And the colours sing, don't they? They're joyous, some yeah, of those colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're still joyous, aren't they? They still are. And uh, so I agreed to do the show. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, uh, it might be OK, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going. I think a lot of other people will be going too. David Hockney, thank you so much for joining us. OK. Hockney Van Gogh is at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam from the 1st of March until the 26th of May 2019. Tickets are already on sale. Now, before we spoke to Hockney, our Deputy Art Market Editor, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to Lawrence Weschler, the author of True to Life, 25 Years of Conversations with David Hockney. He began by explaining the work's significance in terms of Hockney's experiments with photography. He had done this painting back in 1972. But in 1980, uh, the uh, Centre Pompidou in, in, in uh, Paris came to his, his studio and said they wanted to do a, a thing about his photography. He never thought about his photography as an aspect of his art, but he'd often been taking snaps and so forth as part of his preparations and also as just a documentation, a diary of his life. And uh, so they, they looked at all kinds of things and they brought, you know, wads and wads and wads of, of Polaroid film canisters to take Polaroids, the ones they were going to use, and take back with them, and then they would work out the curatorial business. And one of the ones they chose in particular was a picture of Peter Schlesinger, David's former lover, uh, that had been taken as a study for this painting that we're going to talk about. And around that time, he had begun to realize that when he took regular pictures, it just distorted everything. Mm-hmm. That, a, that a camera, as he would later say, is okay if you don't mind, mind looking at the world from the point of view of paralyzed cyclops for a split second. <laughs> but that's not what the world is like. And specifically, it, it distorts the head or the feet or the middle, whatever. Uh, and he had realized around that time in 72 that he had to take a series of snaps and then kind of do a collage of them to get the, the drawing, as it were, correct. And in this case, uh, it was a picture of Schlesinger, five pictures of Schlesinger standing in the pose that you see in the, uh, in the painting that mm-hmm. we're talking about today. And uh, it was because he had taken all these Polaroids of that that there were all these Polaroids left over, and he began doing the photo collages at that point. And that became, I would argue, the dividing point of his life uh, as an artist. And for, for the, ever since then, in 1980 or so, he's been thinking about 
the significance, the importance of photography and the problems of photography and doing all kinds of hundreds of thousands of photographs as an extended critique of photography in a way. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of touched, it on, touched on it already a little bit about what's significant about this particular painting, but let's talk about the themes. What did the portrait represent to him? This is a heart-wrenching moment in his life. So I mentioned that 1980 is going to be a dividing point in terms of his in terms of his career, in terms of his subject matter. 1971-72 uh, is where he breaks up with Peter Schlesinger, who in some ways was the love of his life, had been a subject of many, many portraits, mm -hmm. many, many things. And between the time he first had the idea for this painting and when he finally painted it, he'd done one version which wasn't working, he did a second version, uh, and they'd broken up. And yet, the portrait, and it's a very strange title for a painting, by the way, Portrait of an Artist, mm -hmm. and then what's the, the parentheses, two figures at a pool or something. Well, who's the artist exactly in that portrait? And, I mean, Peter was the muse, was the model. He wasn't the artist at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's the figure standing up looking down. Um, when painted the first time, perhaps he was the love object, but at this point, including at the point when they took the pictures of him in the park in London, uh, he had broken up with him, and it had been a shattering, catastrophic breakup. And so then, who's the figure swimming? Maybe it's David, and Peter's looking down on him, but in fact, biographically, it's David standing outside the poolscape of the canvas mm -hmm. and looking into the catastrophe of this former love interest who's looking down at a swimmer. The swimmer is either David, in which case possibly contemplating the breakup, or some other love interest, in which case what is David looking at? I mean, there's loaded what's going on in that picture. It, he tried to do it one time, he couldn't do it. He then did it famously just before the show opened in 1972 at the Emmerich Gallery. Uh, but it's just really, really loaded as a painting. So, arguably, it's not for nothing that this is the painting that this whole uh, hysteria is, is <laughs> swirling around as we get close to the auction. Let's talk a little bit about the hysteria then. Um, it is going for an astronomic price. I wonder what your thoughts on that are and how it fits into Hockney's rise in fame and his uh, market value in general. Any work of art by any artist is somewhere between worthless and priceless. And anything more specific you're going to say about it is comedy. So everything we're talking about here at one length, from one point of view, is just comedy. You know, nothing to take terribly seriously. The, the second way to look at it is just the facts. It's a fact. Mm -hmm. It is how art works in late capitalism. It is uh, art as an investment. It's all those kinds of things. And in the particular case of this sale, there just happens to have been this major retrospective of Hockney that went from the Tate to the Centre Pompidou and then back to the Met, that really, I think, pretty much buried the doubts about Hockney. I mean, it was a major, it was, in many ways, the best statement you can make for his work, and it was all the critics finally surrendered and said, yes, obviously Hockney is not only a, uh, a, a flaneur and a, and a painter of the bourgeoisie and of bourgeois pleasures, in which, in which 
instance, by the way, he's much more like Matisse than Picasso, although he thinks about Picasso a lot more than Matisse. Uh, but he's not only that, but he's that, but he's also has the intellectual heft and, and there's something really going on through this career. And so we, we have a, this is the first big sale of a big piece after that. So, so that would explain part of it. Uh, and, you know, we can have a discussion about what the function of art is right now. It's a system for laundering money. It's a uh, place for parking assets. Probably most of modern art today is in, in vaults in Frankfurt and Zurich Airport and places like that. This, this piece itself may end up like that. So there's all that going on. Thirdly, it's a scandal. I mean, the thought they're saying it'll be 80 million, I suspect it'll be more than that, um, in two senses. It's, it's a scandal in that uh, this is one of the major statements of the second half of the 20th century, and it's about to go to somebody's private uh, house and disappear from the art world, you know. I mean, this is, a, this is a property of humanity in general, I mean, as all art should be, but major pieces like this in particular. And the more expensive it gets, the more people are willing to spend on it because that will just mean it be that much more expensive the next time and so forth. So they're not, in fact, even risking any money on it. Uh, but then it hangs on somebody's, you know, and so we can think about how that person made the money, and we'll leave that aside, how they're trying to launder their, the morality of having made that much money <laughs> by, ha by being shown to have such taste that they have things like this on their wall. But more to the point, I mean, what could that kind of money do in the world besides pump, pump up somebody's, you know, image of themselves? What could that do with the, quote, caravan of Hondurans? Mm -hmm. The town you could establish for those people who are fleeing for their lives, you know, what, what could that do with, in terms of the real concerns we have right now? As we, as we entertain ourselves to death thinking about, uh, about the prices of the art market, uh, about, oh, I don't know, whether there'll still be a planet here when your generation <laughs> you know, gets to be my age. And to me, it's all those things. You know, if I stop thinking about the scandal, but I'm fascinated by the history of the artist, I think he's an amazing artist, I think, I think it's an amazing painting, I think it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but... But it's important not to lose sight. It's important to try to keep all of them in mind at the same time. Well, great. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Thanks Thank for you. taking the time. Thank you. Lawrence Weschler's book, True to Life, 25 Years of Conversations with David Hockney, is available from the University of California Press, priced $31.95 in the US or £25 in the UK. We'll be back talking about the wider picture of the New York auctions after this. Konstantinos Parthenis, born in 1878, is universally acknowledged as the founder of modern Greek painting. The creative freedom he brought to his work encouraged Greek artists to move away from the academic tradition and to look at the nation's culture and history through modern eyes. His own paintings are characterised by great spiritual uplift and poetic feel, as seen perfectly in the Annunciation, to be offered at Bonham's Greek sale in London on the 21st of November. Among the artist's most famous compositions, the Annunciation is a mesmerising work of dazzling virtuosity and timeless elegance. Little wonder that Bonham's Greek specialist, Anastasia Orfanidou, has called it a masterpiece of early 20th century European art, and one of the greatest pictures ever painted by a Greek artist. 
The painting will be on view at Bonham's New Bond Street in London from this Sunday, 18th of November, from 11am to 3pm until the sale on Wednesday the 21st. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, many of the New York auctions have already happened, and to analyse the results so far, I'm joined by the art newspaper and Financial Times columnist, Melanie Gerlis. Melanie, let's begin where the week began of New York auctions, and that's Christie's Impressionist and Modern Sale on Sunday night. Uh, yes, they, they started on Sunday um, with a sale that actually was a bit a bit jittery. Um, what we saw actually at their Impressionist and Modern Auction and at Sotheby's Impressionist and Modern Auction the next night is that some of these very big estimated lots, so a Van Gogh at Christie's um, and a, um, a Marston Hartley at uh, Sotheby's the next night, um, that that didn't find buyers, uh, which seemed to be part of a trend for very, very high-priced works um, to be less appealing this time around. There's been some talk about overly punchy estimates. Is yes. that, would you agree with that? I, I do, actually, yes, completely. I mean, I think we have got used to this market going up and up and up. And, you know, this is auction and anything can happen. Um, it's only a year ago that Leonardo da Vinci sold for 450 million at these same at the same equivalent auctions. Um, but actually, uh, the market does seem to have stopped going up and up and up. It's probably gone as far as it can go, at least for the moment. For now, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested in whether the quality of works was a factor. I mean, what certainly the Van Gogh, it's, um, it's, it's the corner of a garden and there are some butterflies which sort of liven up the work. But it, it, this is by no means a stellar Van Gogh. It's a good Van Gogh, but it's not, it's, it doesn't look like the kind of landmark work that you can imagine uh, collectors jumping over each other desperate to acquire. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to give the market that level of sophistication. Um, but I think, yes, I think to a certain extent you're right. I think... We've come out of a trophy hunting market, but there are only so many trophies uh, that you can find. And it doesn't matter how many guarantees and punchy estimates you offer people. There's only a certain number of paintings. But I don't think, look, we've seen, we've arguably seen lesser paintings go for telephone number sums before. I just think the mood is a bit more nervy. Is there any particular reason you can think of for that nerviness? I think for these sales, which are sort of barometers uh, or bellwethers, as we always say, of of, of the market in general, they're quite important. They're key uh, sales that everyone is looking at. They're coming at a time the stock market has been very, very volatile in the US. Um, I mean, I was out in New York a couple of weeks ago and all that anyone was talking about are the midterm elections. And then that's been resolved, but it sort of hasn't been resolved um, oil prices one day are looking way better and one day are not. I think people are just a little bit more aware of the politics around them. So let's return to the evening sales. Um, anything particularly striking in terms of Sotheby's Impressionists and Modern Sale? Yeah, I mean, Sotheby's had a more guaranteed sale. Um, so I think that they weren't as um, nervous probably going in uh, because a lot of their lots had had pre-sold. Um, but again, both Sotheby's and Christie's, if you take out the buyer's premiums, both of them came in under estimates. So they, they were composed quite differently, but actually they both 
disappointed. Um, but yes, there were some high points as well. There was a wonderful um, collection. I think they called it the Triumph of Colour um, with some beautiful Kandinsky's and they all did terribly well. Um, and a Magritte, a rather powerful Magritte um, that also made a record for Magritte. So this is not to, this is not to dismiss the market completely. Um, there were some high points and the Monet at Christie's as well. So there were some high points. It's just not quite as high as it has been. I was struck by the Monets, that the one that you really thought would definitely fetch, uh, would probably meet its higher estimate or, or even go above it, which was the water lilies, mm. actually got a rather modest sum, whereas a sort of relatively calm and quiet snow scene did really well. Yes. Which, and that sort of made me think, you know, what, what do people want from Monet these days? Is this shifting towards a more contemporary kind of almost minimalist <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, crowd for, for, for a Monet? There is quite a minimalist crowd. Uh, maybe that goes with a slightly a slightly cooler market. I mean, we saw this with the Ebsworth collection a bit later in the week at Christie's that uh, cool American modernism feels a little bit in vogue as well at the moment. So tell me about that cool American modernism. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. I think that um, Barney Ebsworth, who was a travel he was a travel entrepreneur and an investor in Bilderbear, but he was encouraged to buy modern American art, so 20th century American art, because... 20th century European art was so pricey. Um, uh, and you just saw, I think what you saw is that it's still undervalued compared to some of the other prices we're seeing for more familiar names um, at auction. So obviously you have a hopper that did terribly well, but some of the lesser known artists, Charles Sheeler, did rather well um, as well. The hopper was, I mean, it, the, the hopper was one of the absolute stellar lots of the week wasn't it it was you know it's the sort of image which everybody knows it's an image which appeared has appeared in countless you know posters and postcards and chocolate boxes did it go above its estimate where did it sit it it sat within its estimate um and i think this is this is my point really about how we've got used to a frothy market because 90 million 91 million for a hopper i mean that's a record ever for a hopper painting but you sit and you think oh within estimate you know is that whereas actually we've just got used to too much i think it's a gorgeous painting and it made a huge price but you've got used to 100 million uh, you know being the base level and uh, everything just going higher um, but I think, no, I think it was right. But it, it made a, a serious record. I think his previous record was about $40 million. So uh, good good for Hopper. Um, now, the contemporary sales, uh, how have they fared compared to the Impressionists and Modern? They seem, we've had one major, so one evening sale so far at Sotheby's. Um, and it seems, uh, you know, solid is the word a lot of people are using. But I had a look uh, at the results this morning and, you know, the average Selling price is $5 million, so I think that's very solid. Um, and only a couple of lots didn't sell, um, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, and, and you've seen, again, you know, $5 million sounds like an awful lot of money, but actually compared to the market, the top end of the market recently, that is a mid-level. And this is what you are seeing. You are seeing people looking for value. And where they are finding value, and you saw this last night, um, is African-American artists. So Henry Taylor did very well. Jacob Lawrence, amazing piece uh, of some businessman painted in um, tempera, just amazing. But records for artists that that we haven't seen as often at auction. Um, women are still doing quite well. Georgia O'Keeffe has done quite well this week. Um, 
modern American we've discussed sculpture as well as another place um, to look we've had um, a couple of a few actually hands up so Christie's did very well Keith Herring at Bonhams made a very quite an unusual sculpture actually but made twice its estimate um, so areas that are perhaps yeah I think we've got value hunters rather than trophy hunters at the moment I'm interested in the fact that collectors are now paying attention to African-American art because museums have been correcting the fact that they had ignored African-American artists for quite some time, quite scandalously. And now it seems like collectors are following suit. Yes. Although, I mean, I'm never sure what comes first, um, whether it's whether it's the market or the museums, but I, I'm happy to believe it's the museums. Um, and I do. I think Soul of a Nation at Tate, which is now in Brooklyn, uh, has made a huge difference as well to the way people look at African-American art. And we saw a record for Kerry James Marshall earlier this year, who's become the highest priced African-American artist, living African-American artist ever. But there's, a, there's also some revisionism of, of, of artists who are perhaps no longer with us or have, who are older and just haven't hit, hit the highs yet. And yes, I mean, I think it is, it's overdue. Um, it is a trend but if a trend or it happens to be something that is uh, is overdue then great i mean i think this is uh, to me this is probably the most interesting thing about the sort of modern and contemporary markets right now is the exhaustion of what we might call traditional modernism the modernism that's been in museums mm-hmm. for a century now and the uh, pursuit both at museums and on the market for mm-hmm. alternative modernisms mm-hmm. so We've gone geographically further afield. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, thankfully at last, women are being looked at, as you say. So, this this pursuit of value is is about finding value in 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 fields that that actually where there's a lot of quality and an abundance of quality, and therefore quite a lot of work still available. I agree. It's tricky because, you know, if you're a cynic, you would just say it's the market and it's about supply, and we've run, we're running out of supply. Therefore, we need to dig where hasn't been dug before but if that happens to unearth some gems then I suppose there's there's no complaining um although I noticed that the record for an African-American artist is considerably higher than the record for a living female artist but you know there's time yeah yeah but but that is interesting isn't it because even though we're talking about these the the rise of women and the rise Mm. of African-American artists on the market we're still looking you know if you look at the sums for white male artists it's still ridiculously far above, isn't it? We have a long, long way to go. (laughs) Now, um, there was some concern because of the relationship between the US and China Mm. right now that that Asian buyers might might not be so present this week. What's happened? That's, yeah, good question, Ben. I think that they were maybe not quite as obvious. It wasn't quite as voluminous buying from Asia. But then a Richter and a Monet both priced at around $32 dollars looked to go to Asia. So a couple of the highest prices of the week so far have gone to Asia. So I don't think there's a huge concern yet, but I think maybe it's relatively slowing down. It's interesting you mentioned Richter because uh, he's somebody that I, I, he's one of my favourite artists in the world. And I, and, and I think for lots of people, when you see uh, an artist you admire so much suddenly become a market darling and you hmm. see people speculating about whether his market's over or his bubble has burst. It, it, it's, it, I find it tremendously irksome. Yes. Um, uh, the price for his abstract painting 
has uh, was a good price and mm. therefore by all accounts his bubble hasn't burst yet is that yes right? i think that that seems to be the views all the people that were calling the death of richter are now saying maybe not you know maybe not quite so dead <laughs> i suppose that over the last sort of 10 20 years certain artists have become market darlings do we find contemporary artists who are quite well established falling away from the eyes of big collectors i think they've just probably got as far as they can go i mean richter has said it himself um, recently you know I, I don't think my work should be the price of a house um, and 32 million is a very nice house so you know I, I just think they've got as far as they can go as living artists I think a little bit of um, sanity has come to the market relatively speaking sanity in the art market <laughs> whatever next Melanie thanks very much thank you very much for having me Ben You can read Melanie Gurnless's monthly column in the Art Newspaper's print edition and at theartnewspaper.com. And that's all for this week. If you haven't already, do subscribe to the podcast and let us know what you think on Twitter, where you can follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. Our main Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper and our Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Margaret and Lawrence, to Melanie and, of course, to David Hockney. We'll see you next week when we'll look at, among other things, some new developments in the Middle East. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.